In the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. Welcome to the White Book Podcast, the original A Game of Thrones LCG podcast. Founded in 2010 as Two Champs and a Chump, we thought it best to rename and rebrand ourselves freshly just in time for the game to do the same with its second edition. Tune in each episode for your dose of strategy, discussion, jokes, and good old geek culture. A huge thank you goes out to George R.R. R. Martin, Fantasy Flight Games, Card Game DB, and you, our loyal and new listeners. Check us out at www.whitebookpodcast.com and contact us on Facebook and Twitter or email us at contact at whitebookpodcast.com. This CC licensed music is Townfish by Spinozar. And there you have it, folks. That is this week's episode in a nutshell. Uh, due to a massive uh, scheduling conundrum, it was actually going to be just myself and Kyle recording this week, uh, reviewing the Lannister cards. Um, unfortunately, then a bevy of technical difficulties that delayed us off and on for roughly 45 minutes to an hour, led to the decision to scrap uh, that attempt. So here I am, ladies and gentlemen, now speaking to you on my own. I know you were expecting Lannister cards this week with the full crew, but this week the White Book Podcast will be just myself, Kenan, sometimes known as Will, talking about some neutral cards. That's right. I wanted to spend some time uh, with the neutrals this week and save the actual interesting house cards for uh, the group as a whole. So we're going to take a look at these, chat about them a little bit. We are going to go ahead and use that uh, A through F rating system, but with no E, of course, much like U.S. grades. Now, in the Stark episode, we already ran into some issues with defining certain cards at certain letter grades for right now. And uh, things are still a little bit fluid here in just the core set environment. So I'm going to refrain from doing that right now, but uh, in the end, I'm going to go ahead and offer some rough guidelines. A's are bombs that you're going to run in the appropriate house uh, deck all the time. B's are still strong, but maybe take uh, some support cards or have uh, an obvious weakness or drawback of their own. C's are perfectly acceptable, if unexciting. D's are, well, situational, maybe the best term. And F's then, well, they're pretty much unplayable. And hopefully we don't see any F's in the entire core set. Have my fingers crossed. All right, on to the neutrals. First up is the Fealty Agenda. 
It says you cannot include more than 15 neutral cards in your deck. And as an action, kneel your faction card to reduce the cost of the next loyal card you marshal or play this phase by one. We have a very interesting card here. Looks like FFG did want to support mono factions right out of the box. But I'll tell you, even with three core sets, this is a little bit of a difficult agenda to work around right now. Uh, slots are very demanding in decks these days. And uh, there are a lot of those slots that are being demanded for neutrals. Mainly resource cards, but there are uh, some key events and attachments at the moment. Thus, as our erstwhile co-host Aaron learned, it can be very difficult to actually run a legal fealty deck. Yeah, he was playing like 18 neutrals or something. He was definitely over his limit. So, that said, this is the type of agenda that is really only going to get better as time goes on. Yes, you have some opportunity cost in that you're not running the, uh, the treaty, or sorry, banner agendas, which will also get better over time. But the more options that you have to round out an entire mono-faction deck, uh, the better fealty is, and possibly the, it accelerates to that better point uh, faster. Hard to say for certain. It's going to depend a little bit on exactly what cards are loyal uh, and exactly how many other things wind up really worrying about that trade-off about not kneeling your house card. Right now, Lannister's not a huge fan of that with, uh, say, the things I do for love. And then we've got the Wild and Horde. Overall, um, I think I would rather take the extra income from Fealty, but we shall see. At the moment, uh, the agenda is probably just going to get... Oh, this is tough. I'm going to go ahead and rate this one on potential. Uh, partly, I'm going to average that out and probably just give it a rough B. It's uh, not quite there yet, I don't think, but will be very, very soon. All right, so up next, after Fealty, we have Littlefinger. He's a 5-cost, 4-strength. Uh, two icons here, Intrigue and Power. He has a, the Ally, Lord, and Small Council traits. And the reaction after uh, you marshal Littlefinger, draw two cards. And he also gives you plus one gold. And for new listeners, of course, that gold you're not going to get until next turn. But you do get the cards immediately. Overall, this Littlefinger is phenomenal. Arguably playable in first edition. Cost is is the debatable part there, but I think there are decks where I would be willing to, to do that, which means that in second edition, he's still really good. The extra immediate draw is great. He is one of a very, very narrow section of cards that allow you to draw in the marshalling phase when you can actually potentially use those cards a little easier and thus avoid the actual reserve. So he's great. Um, cost versus strength and icons is solid. Extra income in the second edition environment is phenomenal. I expect at least one copy of Littlefinger, though I would lean toward two in nearly every deck. Littlefinger is, I would say, an A to A-plus card in second edition. Next up, we have Varys, another member of the Small Council. Six cost, Intrigue Icon, three strength, Lord, Small Council, and Spy. He has Stealth, and the Interrupt, 
when the dominance phase ends, remove Varus from the game to discard each character from play. He's a tricky one. The control player and you really wants to love him. The fact that he's a reset on a stick. On the other hand, he is a reset that is very difficult to utilize. Uh, Game of Thrones can make things very tough on him. Even without uh, Valor Vangolis, I have definitely noticed he has a tendency to die, or at the very least, drink a little too much milk of the poppy before you're actually able to use him for anything. And counting that he's a six gold investment, that's pretty nasty. Uh, you're, you're really not getting much in the challenge phase out of him at that six cost mark. Now, he's probably still uh, worth it for a lot of decks to try and go ahead and gamble on. But uh, risk-reward here, the, it's, it's tricky. Um, I don't think I would rate him nearly as well uh, as others might. Uh, I like my resets in plot or event form where it's a bit more um, certain that I'll be able to trigger them. Varus, for me, is probably actually just about a C-plus card. Moving on. Rattleshirt's Raiders. This is a four-cost, non-unique character. It only has a military icon and three strength. It's a raider and a wildling and has no attachments. And then reaction, after you win a challenge and with Rattleshirt's Raiders is participating as an attacker, choose an attachment controlled by the losing opponent and discard it from play. This, I think, is probably a bit of a necessity. I think a lot of decks at the moment probably do want at least one copy of this uh, due to the tweaks to attachments where if the character they're on dies, they're just going to head straight back to hand. Rattleshirt's Raiders, on the other hand, since it targets the attachment itself, is going to remove it from play, truly undiscarded. So I think that's going to be very big uh, with some of these attachments like Hand of the King, Drogo's a Rock, Lightbringer, and so on. Um, he's going to be pretty solid. Another amazing note pointed out to me is that due to the new timing structure in 2nd edition, he actually triggers and can potentially to he can potentially discard the bodyguard from an opponent's character before claim. Yes, that's right, folks. If they were counting on being able to save their Robert or whoever uh, against your military claim using that card, they will not be able to. Uh, so that, if nothing else, makes me seriously consider the single copy of him in a lot of decks right now. A uh, lot of Lord and Ladies floating around, and thus quite a few bodyguards. Uh, overall, he's not just mind-blowing, and I think he probably goes down in usefulness as the game goes on, even as more attachments are included, I assume more attachment control options will pop up as well. Um, so he is probably getting about a C to a C plus as well. That sends us to an attachment, actually, to Seal of the Hand. Now this is a three cost item attachment that goes only on a Lord or Lady. An action, Neil Seal the Hand to stand attached character. First off, I want to reiterate how sad I am that this doesn't work with Sansa Stark. How awesome would that have been to be able to just keep using her over and over to slowly accumulate power? Okay, so she does it slowly anyway, but you could do this at, uh, say, a moderate pace with Seal of the Hand. 
still, there are definitely other characters that uh, I'm all about with this. Uh, potentially, it helps you offset uh, issues with your own Stannis or get multiple kneels out of Robert Baratheon. Uh, let's Edder do extra work on attack and defense and essentially never kneel for anything anywhere. Uh, if you are able to make multiple intrigue challenges through a couple different ways, uh, now you can throw Cersei into each one and boost your claim more. Overall, uh, the potential there is great. The three costs, however, still quite a drawback, uh, even in the current environment. That's a big bite uh, on setup that potentially really hampers what characters you can marshal with it. And, of course, only going on Lords and Ladies. It's only going on expensive characters anyway. So if you're you know, looking at Tyrion, uh, maybe you can drop this and Tyrion and a Rose Road, but nothing else. Or if you're looking at any, anybody more expensive, then it gets rather tricky. So I think that really holds Seal of the Hand back. I'm feeling somewhere in the range. I know, I know you're probably tired of hearing it by now, but probably about a C plus for Seal of the Hand. That sends us to another attachment, to Bodyguard. This one is a one-cost condition that also goes on a Lord or Lady only. See, I said there's going to be quite a few of those around. It also has an interruptibility. When attached character would be killed or discarded from play, sacrifice bodyguard to save that character. Overall, this is almost exactly the same as the first edition bodyguard. Sure, the cost is different and such, and the, the timing, the wording is, is updated. But same idea. Drop an attachment on a character that's not a dupe, so you've got flexibility of playing it on any character uh, that meets the condition. Uh, and then using it for a save. But now it has newfound fragility. In fact, the former first edition bodyguard could sometimes slip under the radar because attachment control uh, as a whole hadn't uh, swung largely back into things. Uh, And so a save like that could be important. Uh, On the other hand, in second edition, I feel that they're, they're going to be very, very many more of these ways to handle attachments. And as noted, with something like uh, the Battle Shirts Raiders, then it gets quite a bit trickier to utilize the bodyguard because timing works in favor of the discard now. So, take that into consideration, folks. Bodyguard, I think, probably puts this uh, at a reasonable C as well. Now, I also just noticed I accidentally skipped over one character as I went. So, my apologies, guys. We're going to back up slightly to make sure we hit it. That is the Wildling Horde. Don't know how I skipped that after the Raiders. This is a 5-cost, non-unique army. It has military and power icons, and also 5 strength. No attachments, and that all-important pillage keyword. Then as the challenges action, kneel your faction card to choose a participating Wildling character you control. Till the end of the challenge, that character gets plus two strength. I do really dig the versatility of that pump ability. The fact that you can pump any wilding with it, I think, is only going to get a lot cooler as the game goes on. I assume they are planning to use this kneeling your faction card uh, option as a limiter on a lot more cards. And as that happens, though. I expect that the tantalizing ability on Wilding Horde is actually going to go down 
in overall uh, feasibility just because you're going to have better effects to trigger. It's a reasonable body right now, though. Uh, cost, strength, icons, and such. Pillage, probably not hitting critical mass and nothing else interacts with it here on the horde. So overall, uh, this army probably gets about a C minus. Uh, you may use it to really round out some beef if you have to. Little Bird is a new attachment here. Okay, well, it's pretty much an old attachment. It's one cost, it's a condition, and the attached character gains an intrigue icon. This is far and away the best of these icon-granting attachments in the core set. Uh, giving that intrigue icon is going to help out a ton of unique characters, from Eddard to Asha to Theon, Balthan, uh, on to Stannis and Robert. There are just so many characters that need that intrigue icon, either to keep hammering challenges home like Asha uh, and get more out of them that way, or to protect your uh, your really key powerful beat sticks like Robert from something like Tears of Wiss. Uh, the little bird here, I think, is probably going to go down in use as the game goes on. Icon spreads get a little better. Control options uh, also spread out some from tiers of lists. So at the moment, I'm probably going to give it about a B minus, um, but that may go down. Then we have another attachment, Milk of the Poppy. This is, again, essentially the same as first edition. One cost, it's a condition. It has a new keyword, terminal, which just makes it work like a first edition attachment, meaning that if the card is on leaves play, it also leaves play. And then tree detached character, print a text box as if it were blank, except for traits. I would hazard a guess, uh, nay, I would say from some level of experience, that Milk of the Poppy is a premier control card of first edition. Uh, I think other folks would probably uh, agree with me here that the cost that you pay for this Milk of the Poppy to neuter opponents' 6 and 7 cost characters, that differential is huge. And when we have things like put to the sword costing 2 gold, it really feels like Milk of the Poppy should at least cost 2 uh, on its own. It is a phenomenal tool. It can potentially help dictate how your opponents uh, claim characters or what they will die to wildfire uh, if they don't have a, a way to get rid of this. Cue what I said earlier about attachment control. Probably remaining a bit more constant in 2nd edition, or at least the need for it. So that means overall, Milk of the Poppy is an answer card, but is also itself a must-answer card. I think I'm willing to give Milk of the Poppy, oh, probably an A-. minus. It does still leave that character in play. This sends us to Noble Lineage. This is another icon-granting attachment. Zero cost, condition. Attached character gains a power icon. This one, I think I'm decidedly uh, less interested in than Little Bird. Many of the characters that I want to actually give icons to because they're beefy, already have that. Stannis, Robert, Asha, uh, Jamie, I think is probably one of the best uh, considerations to actually throw this on. So, not a huge fan of it overall. Though, there is at least one redeeming factor in that it is a zero-cost, non-limited card, which is 
phenomenal for setup in second edition. So uh, it's probably not going to be great overall, but you know what? Dang damn it, there were first edition decks where I ran Apprentice Caller, essentially for that exact reason. Just another zero-cost setup card. So I'm not going to rule it out. It's probably worth tinkering around with just to eke that extra tiny bit of card advantage out of second edition. Overall, though, this is probably still a D. That sends us to the last of the icon granting attachments. This is Sirio's Training. One cost, condition, and skill, and attached character gains, a military icon. This runs into much of the same problem as Noble or Noble Lineage, sorry, in that most of the characters I might want to throw that on already have the military icon. Or others that I might want to give it to, like say Cersei, uh, have slightly tweaked or updated abilities that mean they don't interact with Sirius training or the military icon at all. So it leaves me at a bit of a loss to what characters I actually want to put that on. Also, if you double-check, we have a lot of, say, monocon military icons in the first edition core set. So what do you give this to? <sighs> I'm not sure. This might be a D to a D-. minus. Alright, we're into locations. This is the unique Iron Throne. Two cost, King's Landing. The Iron Throne contributes eight strength to your total for dominance. It also has plus one reserve. Now, as much as I really, really wish that icon was a bit bigger at the bottom, in fact, all of the stat modifying icons need to be bigger so that they're easily seen on a table, I think this card is pretty good overall. Now, of course, um, an opponent's Iron Throne is mostly going to negate this, but unless they have it, that 8 strength is almost certainly winning the dominance, even if it's not as guaranteed as it was in 1st edition with uh, certain Baratheon versions of this card. Now, there are several effects we've seen that trigger off of that. I think my favorite being Greyjoy's there on Thampere to keep returning things to play. So I think there's definitely some room to abuse this, or at the least use it, and that it will probably be followed up more going on. The reserve, that one's tricky. It's a subtle effect. Control definitely loves being able to keep that extra card, but you also have to be sure you're being able to keep that draw engine going to keep the hand full. So far, I've not had a terrible problem um, feeling like I was maintaining an appropriate number of options in my hand with the uh, reserve that I had on my plots and what I was limited down to. So we shall see. The benefits of this is another card that I think only goes up over time. At the moment, I give it a C. Then we have the King's Road. This is a one-cost location. Westeros trait and limited. Then it has the marshalling action. Kneel and sacrifice the King's Road to reduce the cost of the next character you marshal this phase by three. And has plus one initiative. Alright, let's be honest, folks. That plus one initiative is only going to matter if you played this card on setup. Most of the time, folks are going to go ahead and use this the very instant that they play it. So that they can get their fat Queen of Thorns or... Tywin, or what have you, on the board, ASAP. And you know what? I also don't blame them. 
Unless, of course, you're playing against Lannister and they treachery this. Yeah, be on the lookout for that. That is going to be an extremely strong play, the way the gold curve is in 2nd edition. Though, again, because of the way that gold curve is, that is a large chunk of what gives this King's Road so much power. I love this card. It's great. It is kind of uh, meh-ish because it's a, uh, a resource, but I would definitely rate this sort of thing higher than other people might. I think I'm going to give the King's Road a B. Then the Rose Road. This is going to look very familiar to players over the last several years. It's a zero-cost limited location with the Westeros trait and plus one gold. Yeah, that's right. Nothing else. It's limited, which, yeah, I think we all know limited is a bummer by now. It doesn't suck, though. It is a bummer if you draw more than one. And the way the gold curve is looking here and the pool that we have, odds are pretty good that you're running enough limited cards that that may be an issue. Of course, also, now that the curve is like this, you need that extra gold. So I see this, again, being a staple for the foreseeable future. On the other hand, it is a lot less sexy and exciting than the King's Road. This is probably just uh, a C plus. I don't know. That gold's really versatile now with Ambush and the ability to uh, play events for gold. It's very important. This might be higher. Well, speaking of those events for gold, we're on to put to the sword. This is a two-cost event with the reaction. After you win a military challenge by five or more total strength as the attacking player, choose and kill a character controlled by the losing opponent. Max one per challenge. This is a really strong effect. As someone who uh, played through the CCG era when everyone had access to this type of military challenge-based kill, this is really strong. Of course, at the time, it didn't include the strength uh, kind of modifier there, or the requirement, rather. Uh, or the two gold. So this has definitely been rained down or rained in. I think that's probably a good thing for second edition with the uh, spreading of the gold curve and the added importance on these five, six, seven cost characters. If I was knocking them out with a simple military win at no cost, uh, then that, that resource investment differential just becomes nearly insurmountable and people quit playing those high-cost characters that FFG wants us to play. So I think, you know, you're really kind of telegraphing things with that two gold or potentially you're using two that you picked up from Tyrion uh, and you're, you're definitely putting some work into this. Overall, I think it's probably right about where it needs to be. Granted, where does that put it in power rating, though? That's a tricky one. Probably a B plus. You definitely do have to put a little bit of an investment into this yourself. Then put to the torch. This is a one-cost event. Reaction after you win a military challenge by five or more total strength as the attacking player. Choose the location controlled by the losing opponent and discard it from play. Maximum one per challenge. Uh, knocking out those locations is going to be big. Of course, the income is huge. If you can hit a King's Road, that's going to have some impact. But on the other hand, some of these uh, second edition unique locations are huge as well. Uh, the Mander, the Red Keep, and such are frequently draw engines, and knocking one out is going to be a lot of impact for your opponent. Plus, that one gold does not telegraph itself nearly as poorly or as strongly. 
as put the sword dead. Where's the power level there? I don't know. This is tricky again. Uh, the locations, while good, are perhaps not as must-answer as they were sometimes in first edition. So, to the sword then, for me, probably pulls about a C. Superior Claim is another neutral event, this time zero cost. After you win a power challenge by five or more strength, gain two power for your faction. Max one per challenge. It's not to be sneezed at that this is zero cost. Zero cost events are pretty huge in second edition. Uh, the fact that you can play them without telegraphing that to your opponent nearly as much is really going to come in handy. Is power grab really a thing in second edition? Your guess is as good as mine. I only played the first edition equivalent in Melee, so take that as you will. I think this is actually going to be a very strong card in Melee for second edition, um, but whether it holds up in Joust remains to be seen. Still, that power goes straight on your uh, on your house card, and it, the flow seems to be a little different from how it used to be. Uh, overall, superior claim probably just gets a C minus. Then we have the tiers of lists. This is a one cost event. It's a poison and reaction. After you win an intrigue challenge as the attacking player, place a poison token on a character without an intrigue icon, controlled by the losing opponent. At the end of the phase, if that character still has that poison token, remove it and kill that character. Max one per challenge. Now, this is a kill event I could really get behind. Again, it's a tweaked and updated version of a CCG-era card, and it's it plays with things in an interesting way. Of course, this is much easier to trigger than put the sword as a lower cost and no strength requirement, um, but it is only going to hit characters without their own entry icon. So, hence, things like Little Bird offer a standard protection against it. As well, it, it does dictate the order of your challenges some. You're going to want to go ahead and make the military first so that whatever character you poison is not then immediately killed for claim when you make a military challenge. Just keep it in mind, guys. Otherwise, still play the heck out of Tears of Bliss. Uh, not every house can play it uh, equally well or even as well as they wish they could. So it's probably an A-. minus. The Hand's Judgment. This is an X-cost event, and interrupt when the effects of an opponent's event would initiate. Cancel those effects. X is that event's current printed cost. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I wished I would have co-hosts with me while discussing this particular card, because I was curious about their input. But overall, folks, I hate to break the news to you, this is not a good card. It is far too reactionary. In fact, it is far more reactionary than equivalent cards in 1st edition. Paper Shield saw play off and on in 1st edition, but it was a free event that cancelled other free events. The Hand's Judgment's scaling ability looks tempting until you really break down what's going on with your resources here. If you are afraid that your opponent has, say, a put to the sword, that they are just banking in their hand and planning to play, you have to sit on two gold as well to make sure you cancel it. So you already have a guessing game. What if you were expecting the tiers of lists and only sat on one gold, and then they surprise you with the put to the sword? Not going to be a happy camper. As well, if you're sitting on that gold on a gamble, 
there's a chance you're not marshalling something from your hand that you would have been able to utilize otherwise in order to use all of your gold for the turn. You're potentially ham hampering yourself and gambling on the results of what your opponent may or may not have in their hand. Maybe turn after turn? Sorry, guys. This is just too risky of an investment. While you're going to feel great when you do cancel something game-breaking, and those are going to be the stories that people remember and talk about afterward, you're going to glaze over the games where you miscalculated and didn't have the gold you needed to stop that other card. Or when you set on three gold because you wouldn't have been able to properly utilize it to play a character anyway, and then your opponent marshaled, or sorry, played no events. Yeah, sorry guys. The fact that you keep that gold into dominance and used to maybe win one power instead, just not going to cut it for me. That character would do a lot more on the board. So there you have it, folks. The Hand's Judgment gets a D from me. Good luck with it. Well, that is the episode. That sends us on to props and slops. I hope you don't mind the quick rundown there uh, by myself. I wanted to make certain we still reviewed some of these cards so that we can keep the ball rolling on the core set. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with a, with a full enough crew to do a faction uh, preview there. Or review, rather, and get things set. So, slops to my co-hosts that did not wind up making it here. Uh, super, super bummer that they didn't handle that. Props, though, to Tommy, my co-host, who's actually going to be in town for a bit tomorrow. Alas, there wasn't going to be time to actually record and edit and whatnot as well while he was in town. So, there is that. Uh, slops as well to finishing How I Met Your Mother. I finally got around to finishing the whole thing on Netflix with my lovely, lovely fiance. And, uh, you know, overall, I loved the show, uh, but actually coming to an end was kind of sobering. So, uh, now it's time to, uh, watch Parks and Rec and perk myself back up. Props to the happiest theme song on earth. As well, to wrap up the show, I want to throw out some prompts to our Jinkies contest winners. Uh, a couple of you have already contacted me, but if you have not yet, go ahead, shoot me your address. I want to make sure I get this stuff to you. So Matt Spencer was our overall winner, getting a Daenerys uh, Targaryen bag for gold and power tokens or dice, whatever you may want to use, as well as a Kingslayer house card. And runners-up, Harold F. Vance III and Ben Barnhart also win a Kingslayer house card. So enjoy, guys. I hope to be throwing uh, some more prizes and contests your way in the coming months. Uh, again, I want to throw a, a bit of a, a call or plea out there. If you have Thrones events going on, please, please, please come to the whitebookpodcast.com and enter them in the event page. I really want those to be listed there where people can search by location, have them tagged in Google Maps. We can have the calendar of ongoing uh, and upcoming events and have a, uh, a central hub for people to really be able to locate that, that sort of thing. So come check that out as well uh, on, a, on a fluke, just in case if any of the listeners are WordPress uh, developers or uh, have any experience with that. Of course, that's what the site's running on, so I would love some help. 
There's a few other things we would love to try and do, like say some uh, if some results submission, maybe some automatic updating of the annals or further integrating uh, that reference into the site. Or, hey, better yet, I would love to take it uh, the next notch up from just the, the image tagging and keyword stuff that I've got right now and have a full-blown deck builder. So, hey, you never know, crazier things have happened. If you can help with any of these or you just want to write some articles, feel free to submit there on the site and we'll get those up and running or email me at contact at whitebookpodcast.com. And this closes another chapter of the White Book.